From the High Center Studios of Messiah College, the resplendent Agora of Grantham, Pennsylvania, this is the Wave Improvement Leads Home podcast, a bi-weekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. And now, here's your host, author and award-winning historian, John Fia. Thank you, Drew, and welcome to episode 26 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. Drew, season four is now well underway. Today, we are going to revisit one of our recurring themes, the teaching of history. Yeah, we've got a great guest to help us navigate the pedagogical waters. Any of us who follow history and history education are likely familiar with the Tattooed Prof, especially if you do so on Twitter. And while we'll let him elaborate on this, I think his handle reflects his, dare I say, irreverent attitude towards the fussiness that often abounds within the halls of academia. That's right. Yeah. Kevin Gannon has emerged as one of our most thoughtful scholars uh, in the area of teaching and learning. Uh, when it comes to history. Uh, I first came across his work a couple of years ago when he tweeted, quote, I don't want to teach my students to think outside of the box. I want to teach them to light the box on fire and dance on its ashes, yeah. unquote. So I think we're I think we're in for a treat today, Drew. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is going to be a great, just a great conversation. It's something we're both really passionate about. And I know that many of our podcast listeners are interested in history and classroom teaching. So if you are a teacher and you find our discussion today worthwhile, feel free to share this episode with your friends, go onto iTunes or Stitcher, write a review, and just distribute it around as you will. And speaking of listeners, Drew, tell us how you can connect or how we can connect or how our listeners can connect with the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. Yeah, as um, as our regular listeners are sure to have noticed this season, and this is primarily because of increased generosity from our sponsors, We are doing more to bring this conversation into a more official space on social media. So help us keep the momentum between episodes going by joining us on Facebook or Twitter and by following us at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast. Speaking of generosity, our episode this week is brought to you by the generous support of Lisa DeGuardi, Ron Schooler, and Gretchen Adams. Plus, we'd like to welcome Kate Logan to the Circle of Gold Support. Welcome, Kate. Yes, thank you very much. We are also sponsored, as always, by Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. We also want to give a shout out to our newest Sterling supporter, Aaron Knoll. Thank you so much for your help. Thank you, Aaron. If you want to join us, please head over to thewayofimprovement.com slash support. There you will find all the links for becoming either a recurring supporter, or if you wish, you can opt for a one-time donation. That helps a lot too. There you will also find our supporter map, which John is pleased to announce now includes New New Jersey. Jersey. Yeah. Thank you, Kate Logan, our first patron from my home state of New Jersey. I hopefully the first of many patrons from my home state of New Jersey. So uh, we finally filled that spot in the map, but we still have other states, right, Drew? Yeah. You know, I've I've lived in four states over the course of my life, and only one of those four has been filled. So okay. this is the call to Rhode Island, West Virginia, and Indiana. Get on it. There you go. Hoosiers. There you go. Wild I, and wonderful. I know some people in those states who listen to us too. So uh, yeah. so help help us do what we do here. We Once again, we appreciate uh, all of your support. Uh, we have sort of bigger dreams for the podcast. And, you know, if we can raise enough money and get enough support, 
Uh, we'd love to turn this into a more weekly podcast, bring a little more bells and whistles to the show, have some even bigger guests than we already have. So thank you for your support and all that you do to help the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. Remember, we always need American history, but we especially need good American history in times of great social and political change. So Drew, let's talk a little bit about teaching. Since we have, we're going to be talking about teaching here in a few minutes with Kevin Gannon. You're a relatively new teacher, at least at the college level, uh, but you've also taught us a middle school. Am I right yep. about that? Yep. What's, Three years. What's the big difference between uh, teaching middle schoolers and teaching history to college students? Well, first and foremost, classroom management. <laughs> I mean, you know, and I don't want to, I don't want to generalize too much, but my middle school experience was not just middle school, but it was an all boys middle school. Okay. So. I, I spent a lot of energy in the classroom when I was teaching middle school, keeping boys in their seats and behaving and uh, in, a, in a headspace for, uh, for learning. And But yeah, I had a great time and they were wonderful students. It's just they were very squirmy. However, I, you know, I must confess, even though I'm teaching college students now, it's not zero classroom management as <laughs> I would prefer, unfortunately, despite the fantasies set down by Dead Poets Society, a good tweed jacket and soaring passion won't actually fill your classroom with free thinking disciples of the humanities that I wish it would. But uh, <laughs> well put, well put. <laughs> but beyond classroom management, obviously the content changes. Um, actually, those who heard our patrons only episode with Corey Holsizer, and there's all, you can still hear those if you want to become one of our donors, you will remember Corey um, teaches his middle schoolers to challenge authors with evidence. And I, I must confess, that was never so bold uh, when teaching middle school students. I stuck more to kind of hard content. But uh, I can say that I take the same approach and that that forms the bedrock of my college teaching. It's a lot of looking at authors, looking at the arguments that authors are, are making, and then using evidence either from the, the text or from other texts to either support or challenge what that author is arguing. Now, Drew, you, um, you mentioned classroom management can sometimes be an issue in the college classroom, though not much. What's been your biggest challenge so far in the college classroom as a relatively new college teacher? Well, I'm a little bit nervous considering how much of a guru Kevin Gannon is, especially about <laughs> diversifying instruction. But short answer, long-windedness. Yeah. I mean, seriously, I, I tend to lecture, lecture more than I, I mean to, right? I, I mean, when I set down my, my plans for, for a day of teaching, I usually allot just a, a short amount of time to kind of traditional content delivery, lecture, uh, lecture delivery. But I always go long because I, I, I chase every rabbit trail that comes up. I, I have in the moment this kind of idea or connection I can make to something totally different than I never even planned to mention. And, and unfortunately, I spend a lot of time. So already in my class this semester, and especially because we're, we're screening films, so there's actually sure. some time constraints there. I've, I've run into trouble already a couple times because of my long-windedness. Well, long-windedness is a problem that's just not something that new teachers uh, have to deal with as well. You know, I, I, I sort of struggle with that myself. Really? A little bit. Yeah. You've had me in class. Maybe a little bit. <laughs> a little bit. Well, I mean, and, and this gets to to one of my issues, and I think it's actually one of the issues that Kevin is going to address during the interview. You know, I really enjoyed sitting in a classroom and kind of being a being a intellectual sponge. Yeah, hear a lecture or... Right, yeah. yeah. You know, I'm yeah. the kind of person who will go to a guest lecture yeah. or go yeah. to a historical society just to hear someone speak. So for me, that, you know, was yeah. an effective way of learning. But as Kevin points out in some of his work, 
just because it's how you would want to learn doesn't mean that that's always the best way to teach. Right, right. I'd be curious to know. I don't know if we're going to ask him this or not, but I think um, yeah, I'd, I'd be curious to hear his take on the lecture, right? The traditional lecture. I've always been, maybe I'm conservative on this. I always think there's a place for the conservative, that, or the, for the lecture rather, in um, in history classes especially. But uh, that's that's up for debate right now. And the more I read about kind of history pedagogy, the more I realize I'm becoming a little more of a dinosaur by sticking uh, so much to the lecture. I don't think you can have the lecture alone. There's always got to be some kind of engagement and discussion and so forth. But I still think it's a useful a useful uh, delivery system. But maybe Kevin will disagree. Well, and I mean, I, I've been re- keeping up on that debate as well. And I think oftentimes the critiques of the lecture are referring to the... Um, the ambling kind of yeah. unorganized lecture, yeah. whereas the those who support lecture usually have the caveat: this is a well organized, right. very tightly outlined, lots of gaps for response. I mean, that's how sure. I approach lecture sure. too. Sure. But how about you? I mean, you've already kind of started explaining a little bit, and as but you are a classroom veteran. Uh, you know, I'm a veteran of your classroom. Uh, what challenges do you face when you teach? Well, I continue to work hard on making sure my students know that by studying the past. They are also developing a host of skills necessary to their participation in both a democratic society and uh, a capitalist society. Uh, More and more, I find myself when I'm teaching sort of stopping in the middle of a lecture or stopping in the middle of a discussion of a primary source and explaining to my students what just happened in that space. You know, I find myself saying things like, do you see what we just did there? You know, as we're sourcing a document or making a sort of critical observation about a document or, or pausing, you know, uh, uh, taking a step away from the content and asking how might the way we are thinking about this text or this idea translate into making you a more thoughtful citizen in a democratic society. So I find myself deliberately making those kinds of moves and trying to illustrate to my students, especially if they're history majors, about the way those kinds of moves are, are made so that they can think more deeply as historians about society. And and you keep you make sure students keep writing, don't you? I mean, I, at least that's how I remember your class. Sure. Yeah. 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 That, I mean, I, for me, I think that's important too because that that becomes the translation tool for taking those skills that you're talking about, those moves that you're talking about, and really making them right, uh, translating them into organized thoughts and synthesizing uh, sure. those thoughts. So sure. that's that, that's a big part of how how I approach my classroom as well. Well, I know you have a lot of thoughts on these matters, so before we get to our interview with Kevin Gannon, you have a few more things you want to say about history and citizenship. In summer 2017, the Pennsylvania State Senate introduced a bill that would require the Commonwealth's high school students to take a civics and history test identical to the one taken by immigrants seeking naturalized citizenship in the United States. According to the bill's co-sponsors, Senator John C. Rafferty, a Republican, and Andrew Dinneman, a Democrat, knowledge of basic American history and civics is on the decline in Pennsylvania. They cite a 2016 survey from the University of Pennsylvania's Annenberg Public Policy Center that found only 26% of adults were able to identify the three branches of the United States government. According to Rafferty and Dinneman, quote, this is not an acceptable percentage, unquote. 
If the bill passes, students will be required to take a test modeled off of the 100-question exam that U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services administers to citizenship candidates. The exam includes questions such as, what do we call the first 10 amendments to the Constitution? What did the Declaration of Independence do? And name one problem that led to the Civil War. Rafferty and Dittemann believe that an understanding of civics, government, and American history is essential to prepare and encourage, as they put it, students to be, quote-unquote, responsibly engaged citizens. The bill before the Senate, they argue, quote, is an important and necessary step toward achieving this purpose, unquote. I agree. The Rafferty-Dittemann bill is a nice first step but it will do very little to produce responsibly engaged citizens unless we see a more robust commitment to history education. History education and the contribution that it makes to civil society requires much more than just memorization and test-taking. When I first read the legislation, I thought about what conservative talk show host Rush Limbaugh said about history education amidst the fiercely partisan debates over national history standards in the 1990s. History is real simple, Limbaugh said. You know what history is? It's what happened. And history ought to be nothing more than the quest to find out what happened. As any history teacher knows, this is a horrible description of how we teach our subject in the K-12 classroom. Yet the spirit of this Pennsylvania State Senate proposal seems to echo Limbaugh. If the Pennsylvania legislature is really serious about the role history might play in the training of citizens, they might want to encourage Pennsylvania lawmakers to require history educators to have training in how to teach historical thinking. Students today, as we know, are bombarded with information. The kind of facts necessary to score well on a citizenship test can be easily found by conducting a quick Google search. What our students really need is training in how to distinguish between good information and bad information. When they read their social media feeds, they need to learn how to spot what is fake and what is real. They need to consider the source of information they encounter. They need to see the complexity of the human experience as it has unfolded through time. They need to think about the forces that have shaped the world that they have inherited. This kind of thinking should happen every day in a history classroom. Students read documents from bygone eras and analyze them critically. They look for bias. They understand voices from the past in context. They move back and forth between the past and the present and get a good mental workout in the process. History students learn to listen to voices from the past before judging them. In the process, they cultivate the democratic virtue of empathy. They learn to look beyond themselves to see the world through the eyes of others, those who are dead and those who are alive, who have experienced the past in different ways. These kinds of historical thinking skills are acquired through an immersion in the past guided by a skilled history teacher. If states like Pennsylvania are interested in producing good historically informed citizens, 
They should initiate legislation that requires history teachers to have a college major in history. I spend a lot of time working with school teachers from around the country, and I'm always shocked when I learn how few of them teaching history have not majored in the field. Moreover, some of their training in history consists of one or two courses in the field. By majoring in history, teacher education graduates enter the classroom prepared to deliver content and cultivate the historical habits of the mind desperately needed in our society today. The Rafferty-Dinneman bill and similar bills proposed in other states are a good start. Facts and civic knowledge is the foundation of a good history education. But it is only a foundation. Our guest today is Dr. Kevin Gannon. Gannon serves as the director of the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning and is professor of history at Grandview University in Des Moines, Iowa. He describes himself as, quote, a total geek for history, pedagogy, and technology, particularly where the three intersect. Gannon's scholarly passions are 19th century history, particularly the United States and the Americas, historiography and theory, and critical pedagogy. He regularly teaches courses on the Civil War and Reconstruction, Colonial America and the Atlantic World, Latin American history, research methods and historiography, and the history of capitalism. In addition to his work in the classroom, Gannon works with first-year and at-risk students at Grandview, a job he describes as, quote, some of the most rewarding stuff I've done in my career, end quote. He gives presentations and facilitates workshops on history pedagogy throughout the country and is a fierce advocate for professional development, active learning, scholarly teaching, good technology, social justice, movable furniture, and humor in any environment. We are very happy today to have Kevin Gannon on the show uh, podcast with us today. Kevin is a expert on history pedagogy. He teaches at Grandview University, and we're going to talk a little bit about teaching history today. So, Kevin, welcome to the show. Thanks, John. Great to be with you. Tell us a little bit about what you do at Grandview University. I um, I know that you're a historian, but you're also engaged in some initiatives related to teaching and learning there as well. Uh, that's right. Uh, so my position is half faculty, half administrative, uh, or as my colleagues call it, staffalty. Uh, <laughs> so I have a half teaching load in the history department. I'm a full professor here. I'm a former department chair, worked up through the faculty ranks. Uh, but my administrative portion is I direct our Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning, or KETTLE is the acronym. So that's a, a well-established teaching and learning center that's been on campus uh, predating uh, when I became director, um, which is good because it had already been built into the culture here, uh, and I didn't have to do that kind of hard work. But I'm our faculty developer. Um, my center oversees teaching and learning, uh, broadly conceived, uh, we do programming, individual consultations, classroom observations, and we also work with instructors who are teaching blended or online classes. Okay. And we also work with instructional technology and our Blackboard Learning Management System. All that comes out of my office as well. Great, great. Now, um, we'll get more into that, some of the things that you, uh, how you think about the uh, discipline, if you will, of teaching. But some of our listeners may know you uh, by your Twitter handle or your website or your sort of public persona as the tattooed prof. 
Right. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you this question. It's inquiring minds want to know, Kevin, is there any deeper meaning to this kind of identity uh, of the tattooed prof beyond the fact that you just have a lot of tattoos? Uh, no, that's pretty much it. Okay. <laughs> you know, there's, you know, I wish I could say there's a deep story, uh, okay. you know, that connects to the inner part of my identity. But so, no, I'm a heavily tattooed. So the tattoo professor. doesn't represent some deeper meaning about teaching or your vocation as a historian, or? <laughs> well, actually, I do have several pieces that do symbolize aspects of teaching, of technology, of history, right? But okay. Uh, okay. when I first started getting them, that wasn't exactly the plan. <laughs> got you. Got you. Um, what I want to do with the rest of the interview is I want to actually um, focus on some of the statements uh, that you make in uh, we dug up your teaching manifesto, as you call it, uh, which All I right. love. I love, by the way. And you. your teaching manifesto includes some very somewhat provocative, but very um, important, I think, quotes about uh, how to teach. And hopefully we can bring them a little bit as well into the teaching of history, but they're sort of, you know, they can also be applied to other disciplines as well. So I thought what I would do uh, in this interview is I would read you a, uh, a portion of your teaching manifesto. And Drew, we can get the manifesto, a link to it up on the up on the website so people can read the whole thing for themselves and then have you kind of riff a little bit and, and maybe elaborate a little bit more or or perhaps annotate the quote uh, a little bit more and give us some insight into what you mean by some of these, uh, some of these things. Does that sound good? Sure. That okay. sounds great. All right. Great. I should, uh, I should divulge that this, the manifesto has resonated to the point where I'm working it up into a book. Great. Uh, and it's going to be published with uh, West Virginia University Press as okay. part of their teaching and learning and higher education series. Great. Edited by James Lang. They, uh, they like the manifesto too, and asked right. me if it was possible. When can so, we ex- when can we expect that, Kevin? Is it coming soon, or uh, hopefully within a year? Um, Wonderful. I'm in the middle of the manuscript right now, and okay. uh, writing furiously, as Good. as is usually the case, probably not as quickly as my editor would like. Of course, uh, but doing my best. So, um, so basically, your take is that going to be the title, the teaching manifesto. Yeah, Radical Hope, the Teaching Manifesto. Wonderful. We'll get to that Radical Hope phrase, too, which I really like. Let me start with this. You write, there is a large body of scholarly research on teaching and learning. To not be conversant with at least its major findings is to commit professional malpractice. Um, you know, t- tell us a little bit more about that. Maybe even, even if you could sort of mention, uh, uh, bring this into the realm of history a little bit, too. Sure, absolutely. So... I think one of the things that, that has frustrated me in the in the world of faculty development is that there's this perception that teaching is just sort of this art. You do it by feel. Uh, you're either a good teacher or you're not, right? right you know, it's right. a personality-driven thing. And I think, you know, clearly those sorts of things can bear upon one's practice, but there is a large body of research on what helps students learn effectively and what hinders students from learning. And it's not necessarily stuff that's, you know, inborn to someone who is a teacher. So I think we should treat the scholarly approach to teaching and learning in the same way that we would treat the scholarly approach in our own discipline. Here is peer reviewed research that shows us, Hey, these things work. Uh, and more peer reviewed research saying, Hey, maybe we should rethink some of these other assumptions that we brought with us into the classroom. Um, I think for historians in particular, you know, we, since the election, of course, 
there's been this even more intense conversation about the role that we historians have to play in the public right. discourse, in the right. public square. And teaching history uh, is really in the front lines of that. You know, we, we as professors, those of us who are in the classroom, are really on the front lines of our discipline and the way that it intersects with the present and the, and the uh, coming generation. So I think we need to be paying very close attention to how well we're doing that. For those who are out there who are college teachers or even maybe even, you know, uh, high school teachers, middle school teachers, uh, where, where do you begin? Where do you, you know, some of us, some of us college professors may not necessarily have ever read any of this teaching and learning stuff, right? right. I mean, well, where, yeah, where's a good right. place to start? Where would you recommend kind of a, a, a journalist subscribe to a website to, to read uh, a book to pick up to get you going on this? So for, for those in the college classroom, uh, and, and I would say even in the high school classroom sure. as well, you know, history-specific uh, teaching and learning literature would start with people like Sam Weinberg. Of course. Um, Who's been on know. the show. Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. 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 And, and a Weinberg's historical thinking uh, is a great collection of essays. Uh, he also co-edits a volume called Knowing, Teaching, and Learning History, uh, which has essays from several uh, different experts on history pedagogy that I found really useful. Um, but I think a lot of the teaching and learning literature kind of goes beyond that disciplinary boundary. And sure. I think, you know, where I would start would be uh, James Lang's book, uh, Small Teaching, where he okay. synthesizes an enormous amount of research and translates that into stuff that it, it works that we can implement right into our practice. In other words, his, his idea of small teaching is that you can make small, discrete changes based upon larger findings that will actually have really kind of exponentially positive effects. So you don't have to completely redesign a course. You don't have to completely change everything you do in the classroom. Here are some research-based practices that you can implement right away. And, and you know, that's a book I recommend to my faculty. Uh, Jim came here and did a workshop based on that research a couple summers ago. Uh, and, and our faculty just raved about everything they took out from it. Um, there's also a great book uh, edited by Susan Ambrose and several others called How Learning Works, Seven Research-Based Principles uh, for, for Classroom Practice. And each chapter uh, is a different principle uh, and, again, ways that the research can help inform uh, what we already do. Uh, there's a great chapter in there that I have been going back to very much recently on classroom climate, for example. Uh, and ways that we can help manage difficult or emotionally fraught or emotionally laden mm -hmm. discussions with our students, which I think in history, we have the disciplinary tools to do that and to do it well. Yeah, uh, we, have, we have material that lends itself to that. Let's do it well with our students. So there's some, there's some good starting points, I think. I mean, so often, I think as historians, you know, when we, when we prepare for our semesters, we, we, we tend to think like, oh, we need to read like three more monographs, right? Mm, right. <laughs> maybe uh, whatever the subject is, and that may be true, right? But maybe we also need to be engaged in this other other literature as well that doesn't that doesn't come naturally to us. Yeah. So right. Um, but we are telling historians, hey, you should get more books, and you know, right? to me, that's a pretty successful. <laughs> there you go. Deal, right? There you go. Yeah, we'll try. To we'll try to get Lang and Ambrose uh, up there on our on our blog or on our website. Um, let's try another one. Uh, you say in your teaching manifesto, much of what we do in the classroom cannot be quantified. Now, I just came out of a meeting yesterday with my dean about uh, assessment, right? All of, our, all of our institutions are kind of going through these, this culture of assessment. It's, it's the new wave lately. 
uh, where we're entering things into new computer programs and we're developing objectives and and learning objectives and so forth. Um, elaborate on this idea that much of what we do in the classroom cannot be qu- uh, quantified. How does how does this statement asse- uh, connect with this so-called culture of assessment that we're all engaging in right now in college and university classrooms? Well, I think a lot of the answer to that depends upon what the culture of assessment is on your particular sure. campus. or sure. in partic- Because I've been at places where it's a very top-down, quantitative, data-oriented process where all you're doing is sort of making curriculum maps and, and collecting things with numbers. Yeah. Uh, and that's my pushback is that, you know, I, I'm a big fan of assessment. I know sure. it's become a dirty word because we've abused it so much, I think. Uh, but assessment is us telling our story. Uh, We say that students should take this course or students should major in history or minor in history or take this course sequence, whatever it may be, because of X benefits, right? It will do this, it will do that, it will do this again. If we can't prove that, then we're not telling a very good story uh, for ourselves or our students. And so to me, assessment is nothing more than the evidence that helps prove our story. Now, that being said, a lot of what we try to get after in our classes are, you know, habits of thought, thinking like a historian, a critical approach to the past, the ability to sort through differing and and very different perspectives uh, to possess some sort of cultural and historical empathy. A lot of artifacts that can come out of that are going to be what students produce in terms of writing, maybe digital work, things like that. Uh, So when we talk about assessment, we need to make sure that it's quantitative, but also very qualitative. Uh, and allow students the chance to tell their story and then us to curate that sort of data to tell our story collectively with students. I'm a big fan then of the portfolio approach, for example. Can, you know, we ought to have our majors documenting their journey, uh, their academic journey, what they did in their 100 and 200 level courses isn't, you know, going to be on the same scale and scope as what they're doing in our 400 level seminars, but let's show that growth. Let's show beginning, middle, and end. So what is there about the classroom then that cannot be quantified? Well, about the class, a lot of things. I mean, Um, to to go back to your quote. Yeah. I think in the classroom, what we're doing with our students, when we talk about student learning, so much of it is based on the connection, the relationship that we're able to develop, the climate we're able to create. Um, You know, we could ask a question and get you know, 26 out of 30 students to answer it correctly, for example. But is that really going to tell you what's going on in the class or how the students are going to remember or or retain that information? What, you know, what that depends on, what meaningful learning depends on is that classroom climate, is our pedagogical approach. Uh, We know things that work. We know specific techniques that are effective. But again, there's no, it's either this or not kind of answer. And that's what I'm really after. And there's an urge you know, teachers should talk about how many hours they spend in contact hours with students as if it's, you know, the more, the better. And I'm not sure that those are roads that are very profitable to go down. Okay. Wonderful. Um, Here's another one. Coverage for coverage sake is where learning goes to die. I love that. (laughs) Yeah. That one actually sounds a little bit like my friend Lendl Calder and his kind of uncoverage idea. Elaborate on this. What is it? What coverage for coverage sake is where learning goes to die. Uh, I'm sure a lot of uh, a lot of um, people in charge of curriculums, uh, history curriculums, might uh, might get a little nervous about this one. Right, that's one that you know could make historians break out and hide. Exactly. Yeah. It, right? 
And, you know, I've met Lindell. I'm a huge fan of Lindell's work. His article on his uncoverage technique right, right. Uh, should be right at the top of the list when we talk about scholarship and history teaching. Because um, I think he's dead on. Yeah. Uh, you know, we talk a big game, for example, when we when we talk about the value of history, the value of even the humanities in, in our society. Right. We talk about, you know, metacognition and the ability to reflect, the ability to be critical learners, you know, all of these larger skills that students can and should get from the study of history. But then we teach our class as if it's, you know, they've got to remember, you know, the, these 50 things on a checklist. So I think there's a real disconnect sometimes between what we say the value of a history education is. And then the way we go about implementing that particular education, uh, we're never going to cover everything. And, and, and I and I struggle with this all the time. I don't want to I don't want to give the impression that I've got it completely figured out. Um, you know, and we all have our favorite topics. You know, when you know the class that we do, you know, when I do the Great Awakening, for example, in my first half of my survey class, I love diving into that. Yeah. Sure. Uh, you know, with the theology, with the you know, there's just so, so much rich material there. Um, but if I if I spend time there, I'm obviously taking time away from something else. And I just have to be OK with that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The best advice I got from a mentor when I first started, he said, uh, dare to omit. I like that. Yeah. And, and, you know, we have to be able to we are no longer as college faculty. We're, we're no longer the exclusive purveyors of information for our students. Students have access to information. In, in a scale and scope that, that we couldn't have imagined even when I was an undergrad back in the early 90s. Uh, so what is it that we're, if we're no longer the exclusive provider of an information, if it's not a scarcity economy, but rather an economy of abundance, what's our role right. with that? And I would submit that it's to help students navigate all of this information that they have access to, uh, because it's not all equal, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and I think history offers a, a really important and perhaps unique set of tools to approach that as a critically informed citizen. Yeah. If you, if we're so obsessed about covering everything, we don't have time to do that stuff. So, so tell me, Kevin, give us some advice here, right? You're, you're again, a college professor, maybe even a high school teacher. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we, Lendl Calder has, I'd encourage you all to read that uncoverage. Google Lendl Calder, C-A-L-D-E-R, and uncoverage, and, and you'll see what he's up to. He sets out some, some sort of models for how to do this in a college classroom, right? Um, but, but what do you do for the, either the professor or maybe even the high school teacher, you know, who's just wed to a curriculum? Um, where do you start? I mean, you're not going to just kind of throw it all out and develop some kind of completely new system overnight. You know, what do you do to the, what do you, what do you say to the teacher who's kind of wed to a kind of coverage curriculum and needs to sort of, um, or wants to kind of move into this kind of, uh, historical thinking model or uncoverage model where coverage isn't everything. That's a great question, and you know, I'll preface my answer by saying I'm fully aware, and yeah. particularly in K to twelve, that there are constraints on sure, sure. You know, how. But that being said, you know, I think there is room uh, for yeah. a faculty member on, on any level to move to make this move. And what I would say is start at the end. So, in other words, the big question should be, you know, a student comes out of our class a year later, how much content are they really going to remember? Absolutely, honestly, yeah. right? Yeah. So. Do I want it to be my class is completely faded after a year or do I, you know, what is it that I really want my students to have? What are the non-negotiables that they need to have with them a year out or five years out? Yeah. And that's where you get into those larger, you know, historical thinking sorts of things. So what are the ways that I can get there? 
And that's where you can, you know, so begin at the end and then work backwards. Uh, we call it backwards design, right? So okay. if everything nests towards those larger objectives, you know, so often we make our syllabus or our course calendar to correspond with the chapters in the textbook, right? right? right. And, and, you know, that's, that dictates what we do and what we don't do. I would suggest we have a clear idea of, you know, what, what is it that our students need to have and then how do we get them there? So I've, a couple of things I found helpful for that, uh, you know, really intense primary source work. Okay. Uh, and a thematic approach. Uh, so, you know, a chronological units in the course, um, but maybe tied around a certain theme. So if I'm teaching the U.S. survey, maybe my focus is on the way, and this is actually how I teach it, uh, that race uh, winds its way through American sure. history. Sure. Um, and so, you know, I'm not trying to cover everything that happened in the colonial era. My students are reading a general textbook treatment, but then we get into some rich discussion and document and image analysis that's more thematically tied. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that also gives our students permission to feel like they don't have to remember every name and date. Right. Right. Because that's the stigma we get stuck with a lot is, oh, I can't remember dates. I'm not good at history. Well, you know. You can look those up now. So. And, and, and that thematic approach, the way you describe it, say, with race, also still allows you to kind of do the change over time, right? Oh, absolutely, you know, that, yeah. that people say, oh, if I, if, I lose, if I get rid of the coverage model, I miss change over time, right? Well, there's, there's you know, or teaching that at least kind of thinking skill. And there, mm -hmm. there are still ways to do it. I, I agree with you, Kevin. And, and I just, you know, for me, it's guts, you know, I mean, I'm still I'm still teaching a traditional U.S. survey class. And every year I say I'm going to I'm going to make the move to uncoverage. And, you know, um, maybe for the sake of my students, the time has come and I need to uh, I need to take your advice. Drew, you had a you had a um, a question or yeah, you well, want to take the next one. Yeah, I, I, I wanted to take this one because I think this is the post-it note I need to put on, uh, you know, on my uh, lectern every time I get into the classroom. But. Our students are not us. If we merely teach to how we prefer to learn, we exclude a majority of students. Can you elaborate on that? Absolutely. So I think one of the, the things that, that we struggle with, whether we're teaching, you know, whatever level we're teaching on, is we're in this gig because we love what we do. And I think a lot of the times when teachers or college faculty get frustrated with students is because that passion isn't always reciprocated. Right. So, you know, oh, my students don't understand history. Well, is, is that true or is it they aren't as interested as you're interested in the first great awakening, for example? Um, you know, so I think the way for me to, to try to counter that is I remember myself in calculus class when I was an undergrad. I did not share the instructor's passion for calculus. So, you know, but yet he did a good job teaching all of us calculus, uh, which in my case was more of a lost cause than anything else. But that's been instructive for me to think about. So if we think back to our own undergraduate experience, you know, who are the people sitting behind us in class? That's who I'm trying to teach. Sure. Uh, I want to make those connections. And also, you know, this also feeds into the debate over, you know, whether lecturing or other methods of pedagogy. Uh, are, are more effective. A lot of the defense of lecturing comes from those, and, and I'll admit, I, my favorite professors in undergrad were scintillating lecturers, sure. um, but I'm not sure that everyone in the class shared that assessment like I did. Uh, so, you know, students learn differently than we do. Uh, some of them learn like us, but some of them don't. Uh, and, and we need to honor that. We need to, to be cognizant of that. And we need to understand that we're not just trying to replicate ourselves, but we're trying to bring students who've taken a lot of different roads to get to where they are together in our class. Uh, and, and being aware of that, I think, is one of the most important things we can do as faculty. 
as you um, as you continue your career as a teacher and you're you know obviously a veteran teacher um what have been some of your greatest challenges uh, in the history classroom? You know, what, 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 is, what is the most difficult thing about teaching history to undergraduates? That's, you know, that's a great question. Uh, and, I, and I've thought about this a lot. Um, I have noticed throughout my career that there's sort of, you know, a majority at least of the undergraduate students with whom I've worked, and this has been true at large state schools and at small private schools, uh, there's an intrinsic interest in history. Um, I don't. I've, I have never felt that my students don't like history. Right. Um, you know, and 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 so when I hear people, oh, students don't appreciate history. You know, when I hear that, that that's not been my experience for for the nearly 20 years I've been doing this. I think the biggest challenges come from trying to get students to understand that history is not just stuff that happened, but a process and a changing set of interpretations. Um, that, and that's, you know, that's really high level thinking. That's, that's higher order thinking, which is what we want students to do on the college level for sure. Um, so, you know, I've had students push back against when we talk about Thomas Jefferson and slavery in my early Republic uh, seminar, uh, you know, well, that's not the Jefferson that I learned about. Well, you know, it, it kind of is. Right? Yeah, <laughs> so what yeah. do we do with that? Um, so I'm always trying, you know, it's always challenged, uh, but in a good way of trying to create the type of classroom environment where we can have those discussions in a way that that's constructive uh, and 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 tackle difficult topics. I think that's and 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 in our day and age now, I would argue that that's one of the most important things that anybody in a classroom can do is foster the type of rigorous, critical, but professional and empathetic discussion uh, that we can on difficult and emotional topics. Our students are talking about this stuff anyway. Right. Uh, so if we hide from it, we're doing everyone a disservice. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Um, our time's just about up here, Kevin. I mean, that went quick. Didn't you? Oh, yeah. Uh, sure let's, uh, let's, um, let's end on a kind of inspirational uh, note. Uh, you mentioned this as well when you were talking about your forthcoming book. You say that teaching is a radical act of hope. Uh, obviously, I love the phrase, and I'd also love to hear you tell me more about what it means. Sure. It's, it's in a very basic sense. We wouldn't be doing this if we weren't hopeful, right? I would not be in the college classroom, uh, even though I get princely wages, of course, but you know, I would not be in the college classroom if I didn't believe what I was doing wasn't making a difference. Right. Uh, and it becomes really easy, again, especially, you know, I keep saying in today's times as if there haven't been difficult times before, but I would argue that we're currently in a very fraught sort of period. Yeah. Uh, higher education and public education are, are under assault. Um, there's a, a sort of a war on expertise, uh, a, a denigration of learning. Uh, there's so many pressures uh, that are coming at us from a number of different ways that it becomes very easy to become cynical. Uh, and to just say, forget it, right? And, and, and you know, to be honest, that's a fairly rational response to, to what we face. But I, you know, I approach radical in the sense of the term, you know, in the root, right? Mm -hmm. uh, a radical act of, at root, what we're doing is a radical act of hope because we, by the act of teaching, are making a statement that we believe what we are doing makes a difference. And it makes a difference for the students that we're with and among on a regular basis. So we have an opportunity far more than a lot of other people do because we can have an exponential effect uh, on shaping the next 
chapter, the next period, what comes next with our students. Uh, what an opportunity. Yeah. It's easy to lose sight of that with all the static that gets in our way. Uh, but I, you know, I think we need to remember and come back to that sort of fundamental. We're doing this because we know that it matters. Yeah. What do you, what do you, let me follow up a little bit with that, Kevin. What, what do you hope for your students? What, it, what is the hope that you want to sort of instill in your students? And that keeps you, you know, gets you up in the morning. Where do you want to take your students to? What do you hope for? Well, part of it, you know, this is going to sound corny, but there's that student who maybe felt that college wasn't for them or that they weren't going to be, you know, I can't right. do this. And when you see them doing it and then you see them realize I am doing this, I mean, what an amazing moment, right? And so getting students to understand that they are themselves an active part of their education, that they are learners. They're not just receptacles that we dump information into, but they you know, have an active ownership in their education. Um, I think that's, that's crucial work uh, to get them to that point. And I think the other thing that I really hope that we're able to do with students and, and, and what I aim for, and, I, and again, I think history is, is very well positioned to do this, is to understand that we are all connected. Uh, mm -hmm. That an action in one place or a decision in one place has ramifications beyond just that person or just that specific location. And, you know, we see that today. And, you know, there's a, a, such a glorification of the individual that we lose sight of, the you know, things like the social contract, for example. Uh, I think we've reached a point where there's some, you know, some serious work to be done. And so my hope is, is that the current generation of students through their study and, and you know, higher education in general, but certainly in history, is able to really understand and to feel, not just know intellectually, but to feel in a, in a visceral and real sense, this interconnectedness that we all have. Yeah, no, uh, Weinberg has that wonderful quote. Uh, I have it actually up in, on my office door, right? The narcissist sees the world through his or her own image, but mature historical understanding forces us to, it leads us outward, right? Literally yes. education in the Latin is to lead outward rather right. than necessarily uh, self-discovery. Self-discovery, of course, is important, mm -hmm. right? But, um, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's obviously a sort of social vision here, a vision for a democracy that I think we're in the business of trying to uh, promote when we, uh, when we enter the history classroom. I, I agree. Edu education should be an emancipatory act. Absolutely. Uh, and being emancipated, I would argue, also includes getting out of that silo where it's just you and you alone yeah. into that sort of transformational aspect that Weinberg alludes to. Yeah. Well, we, we have a we have a noble vocation, Drew, don't we? Yeah, I'm feeling <laughs> ready. I got class tomorrow. I'm, I'm feeling I'm ready. inspired. Yeah, you pumped up there for class. Go. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I'm always pumped up for class. Um, Kevin, this has been this has been a great conversation. I wish we had another half hour here to, to chat more. Um, tell us how we can learn more about you, access some of your work. Uh, you know, where do we find you on the on the internet? Well, I'm I'm all over Twitter. Uh, that's probably where I'm the most active. So I'm at the tattooed prof. Okay. Um, I'm also uh, uh, I keep my own blog. Uh, and pseudo-professional website. I hesitate to call it fully professional. Yeah. And that's at thetattooedprof.com. Okay. And uh, we'll look forward to that book as well yeah. with uh, West Virginia University Press. It's going uh, on my wish list. list. The Teaching yeah, well, Manifesto. We'll keep it My editor's out. looking forward to that book, too. So. <laughs> <laughs> hey, thanks for joining us yeah. again, Kevin. We appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. All right, have a good it. day. Yep. You too.
Wow, what a great interview, Drew. I am ready to get back in the classroom. Tonight, I go back in the classroom to teach my Civil War class. And uh, after listening to Kevin talk, I go back with a sort of renewed sense of passion. Yeah, I, I mean, teaching is why I'm in, in this profession. I, I love being in the classroom. I love connecting with students. I love that Kevin has a, ha, has a passion for first-year students. As, as I've mentioned before, that's one of my passions, too. I really like being that kind of gateway into a 18 year old's first college experience. So, I mean, he's given us a lot to chew on. I'm going to be taking, I've taken copious notes. I'm going to be adding this to my kind of teaching portfolio of ideas as I pre- prepare my, my classroom. And if you're a teacher, uh, like we said at the beginning of the episode, pass this along. I think Kevin gives some great insights, even if you're not a college teacher. I think there's a lot of things here about teaching being uh, a moral act or the use of technology and assessment, some of these other things that uh, I think can be used at all different levels, uh, K through 12 as well. So uh, spread the word, and we'll try to get this episode out there as well on, on Twitter and social media to some of the teacher history teacher sites. Well, Drew, that's a wrap. Hope you enjoyed the episode, our conversation with Kevin Gannon. And as always, may your way of improvement lead home. This has been a production of The Way of Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewaveimprovement.com. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcatcher of choice so others may more easily find this podcast. And let's continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter. Follow us at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast. The podcast was brought to you through the generous support of Gretchen Adams, Kate Logan, Lisa DeGuardi, and Ron Schooler. Also, many thanks to our sponsor, Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. The podcast was recorded at the High Center Studios of Messiah College. Thanks to Ed Ark for his continued support. Original music is by Overholt. Many thanks to our guest, Kevin Gannon. Our studio producer is Josh Lowry. I've been your producer, Drew Durley-Hermeling, and your host, is John Fia. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.